On today's show, we're speaking to Helen Garlick, a fellow Yorkshire woman and author of a book called No Place to Lie about the death of her sibling. We spoke about how his death made her acutely aware of the privilege of ageing. She explained about the power of communication after recalling a childhood that was full of family secrets. Children were silenced and not encouraged to talk. Now, as a woman in her 60s, she helps others get their voices heard as they get older and repurpose their lives. Before we get started, can I ask that you give us a follow on your podcast app or Instagram? Now, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome to Retirement Rebel Life After 60. I'm your host, Siobhan Daniels. Join me on a journey to meet inspiring rebels who've redefined retirement. Together, we'll explore new passions, triumphs over challenges, and discover the vibrant possibilities of life after 60. This is about living boldly, not just aging. So are you ready to rebel? Last week, I spoke to Sarah Barnes, and we discussed how she was drawn to cold water therapy following her life-changing surgery on her legs. She was reinvigorated both physically and mentally, and then she went on to find her own tribe of cold water dippers, some of whom she featured in her book, Cold Fix. We also talked about rewriting how we age. If you haven't already listened to it, I do urge you to give it a listen. Hello, Helen. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Siobhan. It's great to be here. It's great to be flying the flag for women in their 60s and what a rich, diverse, gorgeous group we are. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, that is so true. That's why I've launched this podcast, Retirement Rebel Life After 60, because I want to celebrate all the good things that that sort of happen to us when we reach our 60s. I mean, I feel sort of revived and alive in my 60s. When I look back to my 50s, when I was struggling, I just, I never envisaged it could be this good. So that's why I want (laughs) to celebrate it. Now, if you can just start really by telling me a little bit about yourself and your history. Sure. Okay, well, I'm uh, 65, as we've talked about, and I was born in Doncaster in in Yorkshire, and I'm currently living in North Devon, just by the sea. So I look out to somewhere called Mort Point, which is, it's kind of like cinematically beautiful. I can't quite believe that I'm I'm in this place now. But um, so for, for most of my working life, I was a family lawyer, which is a euphemism for divorce lawyer. But I tended to specialize more on the on the talking solutions side. So I became a mediator and then something called a collaborative lawyer. So when people split up, they could do things by talking rather than going to court. And then I trained lawyers to do that. So I I'm, I think I'm all all about talking. But you know, the roots of that, Siobhan, are in my background because um, you know, I was brought up by my parents who were in the silent generation, those are the people who've had born between the yes. two wars. And they, which was a very tough time, actually. Um, and they were taught just to get on with it, you know, don't talk about emotions. I don't think anybody ever asked me how I was feeling when I was a kid. I can remember those times so clearly. I mean, feelings just didn't exist. You know, depression didn't exist. My, I mean, my dad's saying it was. And yet, of course it did. And what was terrible was that, you know, my, my brother died when he was when he was only 20, well, which is what my book is about, together with that, you know, the family's secrets and keeping things to yourself and, and the toxicity of that. You know, if we can't talk about stuff. Just take me back to when you found out 
things from your your childhood and about your brother, things that hadn't been spoken about that then prompted you to write a book? Yeah. Well, 43 years ago, I was just getting on a plane to New York. I was escaping. Um, I wanted to get away as soon as I possibly could. And I'd managed to organise that I was going to be in the month in New York. I was 22. And then I was going to travel around America. All I... Well, I was focused on in my childhood was getting away. You know, I I just, I thought I was born in the wrong family. I don't, does anybody else you know, <laughs> feel like that? I just, I, I just couldn't believe that I was in, in this family. And I thought, well, I must be adopted. So I used to rifle through my parents. They had all the documents in an old red leather hat box. And when they went out, I'd, I'd go and look at it because I was just determined, you know. Well, I, I bet to, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was most, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I, so going to America was a really interesting experience. I was brave, you know, I, I found Quentin Crisp in the, in the telephone directory and I wanted to interview him because I was working a little bit with the Terence Higgins Trust at that time. So you could just find him in the phone book. I phoned him up and I invited him to come for lunch with me. So we had lunch um, Amazing. together at the Algonquin in, uh, in New York. Was he an interesting character to talk to? Oh, God, he's, yeah. He, he had purple hair, very swept back, lots of makeup. The New York waiter asked him, uh, or we, her, as he thought, uh, what, what she would like to, to eat and then dropped his his eyes to his trousers and went, uh, I'm sorry, madam, I mean, sir. <laughs> uh, but he, he, was, he was really good fun, very gossipy, um, funny, and actually felt that he'd had it really lucky. You know, he was really lucky. He, was, he felt really lucky to be in New York when nobody bothered him and he could live the way he wanted to. And I suppose he must have been probably in his early 70s by then. Yeah, so New York for a month, then I went to Mexico and came back to California and then St. Louis, and then I got a phone call from my dad. Now, my dad would never ring me before six o'clock in the evening, and it was mm. during the day in America, and I knew something terrible had happened. The only time anybody ever phoned me during the day for my family was if somebody had died, uh, and I thought it would be my granny. But he says, Helen, there's been... A a terrible accident, and eventually, you know, was able to tell me that my brother had died uh, in this terrible accident, and I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I just, it took, I was sort of on the, it felt like I was on the brink of freedom, like, you know, my wings were flying, and and then this brought me right back, and it, it, for years, my parents maintained it was a terrible accident, although mm. I eventually found out that he'd taken his life. Um, How did you find that out? Well, there were lots of things that were hidden from me at the time. But at his funeral, which was a desperately sad... Um, I mean, you know, if you can, it was a, a terrible time in, and it was in North Cornwall. Yeah. It must be unimaginable bleak, dark clouds which felt like they were pressing down on us and, and rooks or crows calling around. And then his coffin was carried by his best friends. So 20, 21-year-old lads who were carrying the coffin. And afterwards, uh, his very best friend, who was a, who was a farmer, uh, who I called in the book Nick Kane, just couldn't be found. He, he ran off. So desperate. I mean, just cr crying and couldn't stop. 
he ran, ran away and people went out to look for him. They couldn't find him. So I went out to look for him and I eventually found him um, in what was called the Revel Field in the, this village called Moram Church in North, North Devon. And he was sobbing and couldn't believe he'd lost David. And, but then as he, he was explaining, you know, he's telling me how sad he was. And then he was saying, but it's worse for you, you're his sister. But then the story kind of came out in dribs and drabs that he and my brother had talked about suicide. They both had difficult relationships with their fathers. And that he felt that he now needed to go ahead with his death. Which, so I, I needed to know that this guy was going to stay on the planet. So I became friends with him and then close friends and then, you know, we eventually became lovers and we talked it all through, you know, so he was able to talk to me about his relationship with his dad and about how, you know, David had talked about it. So, I mean, that is just unimaginable and so sad and such tragedy. But out of that, you have now created these platforms, haven't you, where you enable people to be able to talk you actually encourage them to talk yeah Yeah. has that been a hard thing to do well that's a really good question because I think I was taught really to be quiet when I was a little girl you Mm. know children should be seen and not heard and that women were girls were really there I mean I can remember years and years before that happened overhearing a conversation between my dad and somebody on the phone and they were asking about what my brother was doing or what I was doing and uh you know, my dad said, oh, well, David will go into the family firm, which was a solicitor's firm, and become a solicitor. But it doesn't really matter what Helen does because she's a girl. I was listening to that going, no way! <laughs> I, you know, I'm, you know, you're not taking that away from me. So I, I was the one eventually who became a solicitor and it, and it was a really good thing um, to do. It forced me way out of my comfort zone. I mean, I was never so terrified as being in front of a district judge and having to present my case and, you know, they, they used to tear you to pieces in those days in the, in the interests of education. Was it harder being a woman in the legal system? Always. I mean, I got the job mm. by, um, in the city uh, for a firm called Dreesers and Atley by saying, you know, that the interviewer, the partner in the firm said, well, you know, how, you, how do you feel being a woman entering into a male profession? And I said, well, I will work harder than any other man. I will work, mm. I will just do whatever it takes to prove that I can do this. And of course, you know, that's gold, isn't it, for an employer? just means you get, you get one and a half with, <laughs> uh, or, or two people's work. So I was very motivated. I, you know, was quite ambitious. Mm. Um, and I did, I did push myself. Going back to the point, though, about, you know, was it a hard thing to do to, to start encouraging people to talk? And, and was it cathartic for you? Hugely cathartic. I mean, I, I feel, you know, what, I think one of the best, most best things in the world is to have a deep, heartfelt conversation with somebody. It's one of my favourite things. And listening to people open up. And I mean, I, people always want to talk, don't they? I mean, actually, we haven't had opportunities to talk and connect that much, especially latterly with, with lockdown. You know, we've all, we've all learned about how isolation is terrible for us and it's, it's hardwired into our DNA that we need other people. But yeah, I've, so it has been cathartic. I have pushed myself. I have, you know, interviewed people that I never thought that I, that I would interview. I mean, the last interview was Mike McCarthy, 
who we both know. Yes, very much so. Sadly, his son took his own life. One thing, though, that I feel, when when I was hitting my mid-50s and I was lost in life, going through the menopause, um, family bereavements, uh, feeling marginalised at work and bullied, I didn't talk. I didn't talk. I was broken. And one thing that I'm highlighting on this podcast is a lot of women who are in their 60s want to repurpose their lives, feel lost, but don't speak out because they feel that they're almost like they're failing if they do. Because for me personally, on the surface, it looked like I, you know, a successful career with the BBC, everything was going well, lived in a lovely home. But inside of me, I was fundamentally broken. And I didn't talk, I didn't reach out. And I wished I I, I did do that. Do you find yeah. a lot of, of women, middle-aged women and sort of late 50s, particularly 60s, when they retire and they feel lost and want a sense of purpose, don't know how to talk? I think there are sort of particular channels. You know, I think there are places where we can go and be with other women. But, it, you know, it can be the WI, which can be amazing for people. But it can, that's also Jam and Jerusalem. And it's not for everybody. You know, there are quite a few women that I know who are probably a little bit older, but who've, who are terrified about coming out again, you know, at all after that lockdown. And then for other women, it it's, you know, the time of our 60s, it's like we do need to repurpose ourselves because usually our kids have left home if we've had kids, you know, our partner may still be at work or, or maybe retiring. But it's about finding ourselves again. You know, I'm actually grateful for every wrinkle that I've got because I'm really lucky to have got them. Like, if I'd have died in my, well, I, was, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to have Botox. I'm never going to have any of that other stuff. We've earned these wrinkles. We have. Yeah, we've earned these wrinkles. We've we've aged, we've lived, we've laughed, we've loved, we've earned them all. And that's what I keep telling myself when I see them in the mirror. But don't you think that from a very early age, it's indoctrinated in us to sort of feel that they're a negative and that we need to fight them instead of going with them? Oh, totally. I mean, we're, yeah, I mean, if we are objects of people's interest or whatever, then... You know, you're supposed to be pretty or this or that to be. But I think I, mm. I know now a lot of women who are in their 60s who are redefining what, they, what it is that they want and chucking all the stuff that we've been given into the baskets, you know, because into the wastepaper basket, because we don't need it. It always felt to me when I was growing up that, like, the people who, you know, like the 60s were vaunted as being this amazing era when mm. people were having free love and. My experience in a, in a village in Yorkshire was that nobody was doing any of that. You know, it was actually in the 60s, nobody was. It started happening in the 70s, which is when, you know, you and I were out there and yeah. um, could do, you know, it was an amazing time to be a teenager in the 70s. I was really lucky. I was at school in Sheffield and my mates were having 17 and the Human League, and there was this incredible drama group in Sheffield called Meat Whistle, which was funded by the city council. It was extraordinary. We used to do mad things there. But that really fostered a lot of creativity from Sheffield youth. You know, Ian Reddington, who came up, went on to be a, a great actor. When you were doing all that in the 70s, did you envisage that your life, when you reached your 60s, would be what it is, or did you think... No. No? 
Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it was an amazing time in the in Sheffield, but actually, it was the guys who were usually doing the, the performing on stage. We would, you know, we would be helping so so much. So, and I think I always saw myself as having a bit of a kind of like helping role. I've, the thought of being in my sixties, I mean, if I looked at my grandparents, my grandmothers, they were old when they were fifty-five. They were really old, old. You know, hair in the, in a bun. Um, just keeping relatively quiet most of them. What's an interesting thing there, though? You say they were old, as if old is a negative thing. And one thing I'm trying to do when I'm talking to people is to sort of say, old, it's it's an, a, a period of your life, but it doesn't have to be a negative. But I think it's it, it, we've all learnt when we say old, it's almost as if we don't look good or we're not functioning as as well, you know, and and I was saying to a, a, another guest once about, you know, we don't have to say I'm young at heart. We can be old at heart. We need to to re reown old. We probably do. Although I still prefer the term vintage. I don't know. I it just my grannies were still <laughs> oh wine. Well, but <laughs> vintage or retro still sounds. I, I can't, yeah, I mean, I, I am old and I embrace that for, for me. What I'm meaning about my grannies is that they they didn't really step out of line. They, you know, they mm. they lived a, a relatively um, tight life. And I, I think we were brought up, our generation was brought up to still, well, we were, you know, we were brought up by the in the patriarchy, weren't we? I mean, the patriarchy is all around us in any event, but we were brought well, up. Well, it's still here now. Of course it is. <laughs> and we were brought up to look after other people. And, you know, prior, so I was desperate to run away. Then I was desperate to be a wife. I was desperate to have children. I was desperate to have all those things as if that would make me into a person. And of course, I mean, I've been blessed with those experiences, but that's not who I am. You know, I am Helen. I'm Helen Garlic. And I, you know, was a wife. I am a wife now second time around, got children, live in an amazing place. But that's not the essence that I'll be going to my, you know, to the next life with. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment to shamelessly plug my book, Retirement Rebel. It's published by Vertebrate Publishers, and it's my honest account of feeling broken in my 50s and finding my happy place in my mid-60s. I got rid of my home and possessions and hit the road in my motorhome for a roller coaster ride along life's adventures. I want it to help younger women not to fear ageing and older women to grab life and run with it. You can purchase a copy in most bookstores and on Amazon. Right, now back to the conversation. Have you found Helen, though, in your sort of late 50s, your 60s? Is that when you... Because I know, personally speaking, that for me... I lost myself and I set off on my journey with my nomadic life in the motorhome and getting rid of my home to find myself. And yeah. now, four and a half years later, after being on the road in a motorhome, I have found myself, you know, I wrote my book, Retirement Rebel, to to say to other women, don't despair. You can go from broken to mended. And that's what I have yeah. done. And I love the fact now that I know who I am. I know what I feel. And and. I feel I have a voice, whereas before I've always slightly felt not worthy, who's interested in what I'm doing, not able to do things, imposter syndrome. And it's such a lovely place to be when you know who you are. And and have you found who you are in your 60s? 
I'd say, well, I say in my 50s, I was having a really tough time. I was going, my uh, first husband became very ill. Uh, it's, it's difficult for me to talk about that because I also want to protect the children from, you know, from what happened. But, it, but uh, he, was, he was very ill. We, we went through a divorce, which is, of course, the, you know, the, the worst thing. If you've got a really ill partner, then to, to be divorcing at that time was, you know, I was viewed as being a terrible person. But I also knew that I had to save myself, actually, and my children um, by ending the marriage. So I remember feeling inc- I was incredibly alone, Siobhan, very isolated. I had two or three people who were standing by me, but a lot of the time I was being judged really harshly. And and yet, I, you know, my, I, I knew I had to do this because I, there were three months of my life where I was having panic attacks every night, um, not able to sleep. I was, I, was, I was actually losing myself. So I knew that I had to go through that separation and that divorce, even though the world might judge me for it, but I had to break away. That must have been very hard for you. It was really hard. I mean, you know, my my then husband said, um, I will destroy you in every way, you know, legally, financially, emotionally, You and then the world will see who you are. So um, that was pretty tough. And although I was a divorce lawyer, it was still very tough and you know you could say he wasn't in his right mind but he but it was a a very very difficult divorce and the lawyer that I used said it was in his top five or his bottom five really in terms of the worst divorces he ever had so it was really tough very expensive in every way Uh, but I've emerged from that I separated I then got breast cancer so when I was 58 I got breast cancer just by finding out from a routine mammogram so you know everybody go to your scans don't put them off there's nothing wrong with me as far as I was concerned but I did have breast cancer so I had a mastectomy and a reconstruction and it was after that that I thought right I'm going to grab this life so 58 onwards I'd say has been amazing it's just been an amazing time I've dared myself to do things I would never I never thought I was courageous enough and then of course once you've done it you think what was all that about what was all the fuss about of course I can do this stuff yeah but I I do really truly believe out of adversity comes opportunity and I think all the things that I've gone through in my life and I've experienced and I've seen uh, that broke me have definitely made me savour all the things that I'm doing now, the crazy things that I'm doing. You know, if I see a big hill, a a mountain or something, I think I've got to climb it. I don't know if I can physically, but I've got to do it. I'm a bit scared. But the feeling when you achieve something is immense, isn't it? And you feel alive. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm here to encourage a lot of women to do that, to to say, you know, when I'm in my 60s, I'm going to stop self-limiting. Because we do, don't we? As women, we say, oh, I can't do that. I'm too old to do that. I'm too afraid to do that. And you're all the time such a strong woman just talking to you and, and knowing a bit about you. You've been through so much adversity, but you haven't let it get you down. You've, you've, you've let it make you stronger, haven't you? Well, I think, you know, the, there's, a, there's a point where when you hit rock bottom, and I think actually my rock bottom was, was after I'd had the surgery with the breast cancer, and it was eight and a half hour surgery and I came round in the recovery room 
And I could hear the people, people talking and saying, oh, well, you know, they're going through all the different patients. They said, well, this one has got to go back into theatre because it hasn't worked. So we're going to be doing that. And I was sure that it was me. Oh. So I decided that I, that, that I wouldn't take any more morphine. I was allowed to kind of click in the morphine, but I just wanted to, I was thinking, God, you know, I've got to save myself. So the morphine's probably not going to do anything. So I really experienced the, the waves of pain from the eight and a half hour operation. And I really felt like I was at rock bottom but I, the, but the strength of the will inside me to survive and to live was so strong. I, I mean, I knew I would, I, if I had to go back into theatre, I would do it. I'd, I'd get through the next operation. I'd be, I'd be fine. But I, you know, I was going to grab life. And that, but the thing about being at rock bottom is you feel the floor. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You've, you've, I do. You, yeah. When you're at rock bottom, you can feel that bottom. Yeah. And you go right, okay. Is it going to get any worse than this? Probably not. Yeah, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. What is the I mean, you know, it, that you can die? Well, listen, you know, none of us get out of this alive. <laughs> On a happier so, note. We don't know how long we've got. <laughs> On a happier note, you actually run um, writer's retreats, don't you, um, down in Devon? Yes. And it's it's a sort of space where you encourage people to have the, the freedom to to write and reflect. Do you get a lot of women in their late 50s and 60s who who love the chance to sort of find out who they are through writing? Absolutely. I mean, the last group was from 40 to 75. Um, this next group we've got, we've got, and we've got two spaces left. We've actually got a guy coming very, um, who's very comfortable with women, he says. But yeah, most most of them are, you know, I think we're, we're, wherever we pick up as women, we learn so much from other women um, and how we can be. I mean, I, I found that, you know, looking at people in their 60s, I didn't see them living a very great life. You know, it was all about mm. what's on telly this evening. And I never wanted, I don't really watch very much telly. I never wanted to be like that. But yeah, the retreats are about the power of owning your story. So it's about how to write well, you know, what are the key essential elements, the drama, the page-turning you know, there's lots of lots of little tips like that, but it's really all about nailing your story and finding the words to express what happened to you in your life. Because I think once you start going, yeah, this is this is what I felt at that time. This is what happened to me. This is mm. what happened to me. Then you know, you, again, you you're on you're on solid ground. You you can fly from there, but you need to actually see what has happened to you and come to. Look at it, look at it straight in the eye. Okay, so this is what happened. And then you can start to kind of go, right, this is what I want to have happen to me now. Because actually we can all create that, can't we? That's exactly what I did with my book, Retirement Rebel. It starts off with me being absolutely broken, looking in a mirror, mm. sobbing, and just looking at myself and thinking, I don't want to carry on life like this anymore. I need to find an alternative way, you know, like I'm at rock bottom. And and putting down what was the truth and what had happened and what I wanted to happen and how I wanted to help other women 
has really helped me to sort of grab life even more and to enjoy the adventures. And I love the fact that there are tribes of women out there in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, you know, doing amazing, wonderful things. Do you think it's important that the younger generation have role models of, of like you said, you, you, didn't have anybody to look up to in their 60s. You, you just saw them watching telly or not really doing much with life. Do you think it's important for them to have role models, like crazy people like me going around doing crazy things to show them that life can be better? No, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, I think, you know, you, you can't be it unless you see it. Is that the phrase? You know, you, you can only be what mm. you see. And, you know, we're social animals. We learn from other people. So when somebody does go and do something, which somebody else might say crazy, somebody else might say is life-affirming and wonderful, you know, you go, well, if she can do it, then I can do it. You know, a lot of people are getting into their vans now as a result of the chivalrous, you know, Daniel's effect, which is amazing. And I think, you know, I mean, my book was also No Place to Lies very much about exploding family secrets and a a family secret that my mother took to her grave which but left me a note about to find after she died and you know and then so seeing actually that for the whole of her life she lived a lie and I don't want to do that I want to live a truthful life Um, I mean I hope I inspire people but I also think it's I don't think we should get too caught up in that almost because it's like even if you're the only person that you're pleasing in this in this life of yours, then still go ahead and do it. Because I, I think we yeah. need to give ourselves permission to please ourselves, to, you know, to do what we want to do to, to follow our star. So I think so often we've actually waited for, you know, for somebody to come up with some kind of ticket and go, here you go, you know, this is now your permission to do what, what, it, what it is you want to do with your life. Nobody ever does that. You know, spoiler alert, that's never going to happen. You, you've got to do it yourself. I love that follow your star. I think that's that's so true. I mean, I know when I was heading off, I just wanted, I didn't really want to agree with, with the cards that I thought society seemed to be offering women who were heading into their 60s. I wanted to forge my own path. I didn't really know what it was, but I suppose that's what I was doing. I was following my own star. Yeah, you were. You were, and you probably know an awful lot more about the stars nowadays than you did when you set off, I should think. When you go, <laughs> oh, I love that. That is. That's one of my favourite things is just wrapping up in a blanket, getting a hot water bottle and shoving it down in the blanket and sitting outside my motorhome and just looking at the stars when it's really quiet. I mean, things that I did again as a child and you stop doing for about 40 years of your life and then you suddenly think, why am I not doing this? It's almost like, well, you know, you're being too childish. What the heck? It doesn't matter if I'm childish. It's making me feel happy. And I think happiness and kindness are the two most important things to to help you age in a positive way, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'd add connection in that as well. I mean, I think that, you know, to have connection with good people, you know, which you get connection by communicating, by talking. So it's like communication, connection, and community. You know, those like those three Cs so that you, 
you know, the braver each of us becomes, the more each of us steps into our own power and follows our style, then it also encourages other people to do that. I mean, I actually, I got an email this week from, from somebody who is, gosh, she, she, she's 22, I don't, I don't know, but I met her at actually her granddad's funeral. Her granddad was an amazing guy, but she's a wonderful young woman. Uh, I mean, I've seen her sort of once or twice at other events. But anyway, she wrote me, she was the dearest. She wrote me an email to say, I just so love what you're doing. And I've bought your book for my friend who's about to start to be a, a law student. And that I think that's going to inspire her to be a law student. And I was thinking, oh, my, you know, but we writers are easily pleased, aren't we? But I, I love it. I can't tell you how much I love it. It yeah, fills it your soul wonderful. when you when you when somebody connects to you, and it doesn't matter how old you are if you've made that connection. And that's what I think. This this intergenerational connection is so important. It's so important to help us all age positively, regardless of whether we're young or we're old. The youngsters can see that we're vibrant when we're old, and we can see that the youngsters have got something to bring to the table to to help us as well. I get really cross when people say, oh no, people in the 60s, they don't use social media, they're not doing this, they don't understand it, and they they write us off um, for doing that. And then I think, here we are, you've got your YouTube channel, I'm doing a podcast, I've got my Instagram and my my blogs and various, you know, we are using it. Maybe we don't put as much on there as the younger generation do, but there's an awful lot of people in my tribe in the 60s who watch things on Instagram, watch things on YouTube and are involved in it um, and enjoy what the youngsters are putting as well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a place where actually you can, again, mix with people from with all sorts of different ages, you know, different countries, which is which is really interesting. It's kind of intriguing. Although, ultimately, you know, it's, it, I mean, I think social media is great, but I also think real life connection is just the best. Really. Oh yeah, I love meeting up with fellow van lifers and tribes of women who just feed my soul as well. I learn from them um, just as much as I'm hoping that they're learning and inspired from me. But it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, and I, I really have enjoyed oh, you being you. on my podcast. But I do ask all my guests one last question before they go, um, and this podcast is called Retirement Rebel Life After Sixty. So basically, I want to ask you: When's the last time? that you felt like a rebel? You know what? I think it's sober dancing. Okay, so I, <laughs> I don't drink very much these days. And when you kind of get on the dance floor the first time when you are sober, you know, and that's, you think, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to. And then you can just dance, but you can dance and you can really enjoy your body and, you know, the moves and everything else. And and, and actually, you know, the alcohol would just used to tell you you were a better dancer, but it <laughs> lied because you were less coordinated. So I think sober dancing is where I feel pretty rebellious. So actually, it was, it was a funny thing. We went to a party last year and I was dancing and there was a guy that we knew who was next to my husband, Tim, at the bar, and he looked at me and he said to the barman, I want whatever she's having. <laughs> and the barman said, she's having water. She's having water. <laughs> so, Fantastic. That was good fun. I like that. I particularly like it because I have just finished a year of being 
sober curious. And the first thing, when I gave up alcohol last year, the first thing that really scared me was going to my niece's 40th birthday party without having a drink. Mm. And I was thinking, oh God, I don't know if I can do this. And and I remember standing on the edges at the beginning, feeling nervous. I was on the dance floor at two o'clock in the morning, dancing like a nutter by the end of it and thoroughly enjoying it. And it was a revelation to me that you could actually have a good time without alcohol. So there you go. I'm, I'm yeah. not alcohol-free now. I did have a couple of glasses of champagne on New Year's Day, thinking that that would open the floodgates and I'd be off. But I've not had another drink since. So I don't think I'll be having much alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. But I won't say never, never again. But I don't really want it when I'm out socially at the moment. But it's been lovely talking to you. Fantastic to be on your programme. Thank you. And it's great to be with another woman. Yay! Celebrating our 60s. Yay! Here we go. Onwards and upwards. And if somebody wants to get your book and they want to get in touch with you, what do they do? Where do they get it from? Okay, so no place to lie. It's stocked in um, Waterstones and Foils and, and Amazon, the usual kind of channels. And if they want to get in touch with me, they can get in touch with me on Instagram at Helen P. Garlic or on LinkedIn or Facebook or through the YouTube channel, which is called Hello, It's Better to Talk. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Big love and love and light to everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I wanted to take a moment, though, to reflect on it and share with you what I'm going to take away from chatting to Helen Garlic. I learned this, that communication is key to finding our way in life. So many of us bottle up our feelings, especially as we get older. There's a generation who've been told, just get on with things and don't talk about stuff. As a consequence, many of us silently question what our purpose is in life as children leave home, or we may be struggling in the workplace, or with the menopause, or even considering retirement. We end up feeling alone, and then we self-limit, fearing we can't do things, or we shouldn't do things, or what would people think about what we might do. I wish that I'd reached out more to family and friends when I was at my lowest in my 50s. I would have got more support and encouragement to get the best out of my life. It took me hitting rock bottom and then taking to the road in my motorhome to find my courage and my voice to then be a pro-age campaigner for other people. Already through this podcast and talking with guests like Helen, people are opening up more to me about what their dreams are and what they feel they can actually do as they get older. And now I want to hear from even more of you so that we can all connect and have this platform together and keep the conversation going. I want a retirement rebellious gang. It's only when we get our voices heard that we can make more inroads into tackling ageism in society. I want to show that we're not hiding away. We're not just waiting to die. This is what we're doing in our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond. We're living. We're vibrant. We're an example to younger people that you can age positively and you don't have to self-limit. You don't have to fear what's ahead of you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Sarah Thornley, who didn't let age deter her from becoming a national paddleboarding champion. She's an advocate of following your passions in later life and believes very much that every age should be celebrated, something which I wholeheartedly agree with. I'm banging the drum for the over 60s because I want us all to shine. 
This podcast is a safe space for everyone who has a tale to tell about living their best lives after 60. Thank you so much for joining me on today's Retirement Rebel Life After 60. I'm truly grateful for your time and your willingness to embark on this journey with me. If today's conversation sparked something within you, or if you've your own Rebel story to share, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out through our social media channels or email, and let's keep the conversation going. Email us on podcast at retirementrebel.co.uk. And remember, if you found value in our time together today, consider sharing this episode with a friend who might also enjoy and benefit from our Retirement Rebel community. Spreading the word helps us grow and continue to challenge the narrative around life after 60. All of our details can be found on retirementrebel.co.uk. Retirement Rebel Life After 60 is written and hosted by me, Siobhan Daniels, and produced by the incredibly talented Matt Cheney. Join me again next week for another episode. Until then, keep embracing your inner rebel and living life to the fullest. Bye for now. Bye for now.